Bibles and let's turn to Philippians uh, chapter 4. Alternative, I think it'll be coming up on the screen. Thanks, Ian. So, Philippians chapter 4, and picking it up at verse, verse 10. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and in every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs and once again. Not that I seek the gifts, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. Amen. And greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. And the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. And may the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his words. Let me just pray briefly before we come to the word this evening. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your, your gospel. We thank you for your words. And we ask and pray, O oh God, for the help of the Holy Spirit. Lord, that your hands would rest upon this gathering this evening. We ask and pray for that, that precious touch of heaven. For we ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Yeah. those songs we were singing there's a couple of sermons and some of the songs I was just worshipping the Lord there and then that, that hymn that we sung I might refer to some of these, these stanzas um, but you know he who fears God has nothing else to fear I think it was, was it John Knox that once said if you fear God uh, you won't have to uh, fear man and last week we were looking at how perfect love casts out uh, all fear but it's true if, if, if the fear of God is in our life and if we're right with God, uh, no weapon that's formed against us can prosper. So here's Paul, and he's writing, and he's writing from prison. So he's in pretty rubbish circumstances. Uh, sometimes, you know, in our evangelical worlds, we've got our Bible verses, and uh, there's some great Bible verses in this passage. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's a great fridge magnet. We'll stick it on there to encourage us when we're having to go and get milk for a coffee. Uh, and it's a bright promise. But sometimes we, sometimes we forget just the context and the reality in which many of the scriptures were written. That many of the scriptures 
were written um, by suffering saints for the benefit of suffering saints. So many of them were, were in the furnace. So many of them were in the place of affliction. Think about Jeremiah and the troubles that he had. And yet the prophetic word which came through Jeremiah and through many of, many of God's servants, the apostles who were, who were, were treated terribly and put in prison and uh, stones were, were thrown at them. You know, sometimes churches can give their leaders a hard time, um, but I think we've kind of moved a wee bit on from throwing stones at them. Uh, so you can always just remember that, remind them if they're, if they're feeling a bit low because uh, things are a bit difficult. Just say, well, you're not quite as bad as what Paul was. You know, I don't think anyone's throwing rocks uh, or bricks at you yet. Um, but they, they were really in difficult and terrible circumstances. So, so we see the kind of context there that this is, this is written by someone who's suffering, he's in a season of suffering, uh, but yet at the same time, his focus is still very much on the Lord. And, and the whole letter is also very relational. It keeps talking about partnership in the gospel. And he talks about it in chapter 1, and, and he's finishing off chapter 4 with these, this idea of partnership in the gospel. And how this church uh, stood with Paul, stood with Paul whilst no other church stood with Paul, and, and how they sowed into Paul's needs and helped uh, Paul uh, meet some of those needs and help the financial needs of the churches. And again, it's a good reminder as well, um, in an evangelical world sometimes, sometimes you know, the sermon and the pulpit uh, and the gospel and doctrine all become um, very, uh, very much the kind of be-all and end-all. We often lose that sense of fellowship in that early New Testament fellowship and Christianity uh, that was there. So this is something that's, that's flown out of a genuine relationship between Paul uh, and this church. There's really just three simple points this evening though. And my first key point is the normal Christian life is a life of contrast and seasons. In verse 11, Paul says, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am in to be content. I've known how to be brought low, and I've known how it abounds. In every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and needs. So whatever the situation, whatever the circumstance, and whatever season Paul's in, uh, whether he's in the midst of a revival, and thousands of people are coming to Christ, or whether he's chained in a prison cell, Paul says he'd learnt the power and the secret of being content. What about us this evening? Where are we at in that sense in our, in our seasons? There's different seasons that we face. Uh, Paul's went from times of great glory and times of great blessing to other times where he was in times of great opposition, great persecution, uh, and here he, is, here he is in prison. As individuals and as Christians, we can be in different seasons. Uh, sometimes one of the hardest seasons, I think, to be in is, is a wilderness season. It's a season when it's not as if there's loads of terrible things happening. Uh, and it's not as if there's loads of brilliant things happening. It's just nothing's happening. It's just we're just plowing on. And, you know, life's ticking along. But there isn't that kind of strong sense of God's favour being outpoured. But equally, there isn't any immediate kind of trial. So, so what kind of sometimes I think happens is we can actually end up camping in the wilderness. We can end up becoming comfortable and complacent in the wilderness. And, and Paul here is talking about a contentment. We need a contentment in every circumstance. 
But there is also a wrong kind of contentment as well that can happen in our lives, particularly at when we're heading into wilderness seasons or we're in wilderness seasons. In a sense, before Israel were able to move into the promised land, they had actually become content in their slavery. They had become content in Egypt. So that when things were beginning to get difficult and, and that opposition was there, they started complaining to Moses, it was better in Egypt. Where are you taking us? It was better in Egypt. And it's fascinating, isn't it, um, that we can actually be content in slavery. As people, we can be content with less than what God has for us. God had a, had a glorious destiny for the Old Testament people of God. He had the promised land for them. He had his covenant promises that he had made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But his covenant people were actually content to be in that place of slavery. And, that, and we can be like that as well. We can be content uh, in a kind of sense of comfortable in our season of dryness. We can become content and comfortable even perhaps with sin in our life, if it's not too serious sin perhaps in our eyes. Um, and we can also often sometimes just be content with the level of faith in which we've kind of arrived at. And, and we can almost kind of stagnate there. And I suppose what I want to kind of try and kind of stir up tonight is, is something of a divine discontent. I'm kind of going off on a wee bit of a, I can launch you, I can rein me back in, Alec, if I go too far off in this tangent. But, but a divine discontent. You know, the seasons of wilderness, I'm thinking here, there's a couple of passages that, are, that speak into this. The prophet Habakkuk says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no foods, and the flock be cut off from the folds, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength, and he makes my feet like the feet of the deers. He makes me tread in high places. I'm trying to draw a parallel there between what Habakkuk said and what Paul said. Paul said, in whatever situation, in whatever circumstance that I am in, whether I'm in a place of prosperity or whether I'm in a place of poverty, I've learned the secret that I've been satisfied. I know what it is to be content. Habakkuk's saying, though literally everything's barren, the fig tree is supposed to be blossoming, and that's a sign of Israel, isn't it? That's God's covenant people. It's not just a literal fig tree. What he's basically saying is, though the people of God be in a place of absolute barrenness, and there's no fruit on the vines. Everything that Habakkuk is saying about the fruit and the lack of fruit in the vines, about the olive oil failing, the fields having no food and no cattle, is the exact opposite of what God had promised. The exact opposite. What is it that God had promised his people Israel? I will bring you into a land of milk and honey. I will bring you into a place of abundance. I will bring you into a place of plenty. I will bring you into a place where you will have no needs. Uh, because that was his covenant promise. Not that they would get so focused on the blessings and the material blessings. And, but so that they would be his people. Because God was gathering a people for himself. So what Habakkuk is kind of saying is, even if we're in this situation where it just seems barren, it seems dead, it's dry. And worse than that, this is the opposite of what God promised. This is the opposite. Where is this land of milk and honey? 
Uh, why is the fig tree not blossoming? Why is the covenant community of God not seeing a greater measure of blessing? Is there a baptismal tank under here? There's about no baptism tank in the baptism. You really Baptists? There's a baptismal tank. When was the last time there was a baptism? Two years ago. Praise God. Two years ago is good. Some churches, it's 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Where am I going? Though the fig tree do not blossom. Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In the day of Pentecost, these weak, frail jars of clay, humans with absolute utter feelings, Peter, who buckled in front of a wee servant girl, Peter the strong fisherman, when interrogated by a, straw, a, little, a little maid girl, you know Jesus, don't you? No, I don't know what you're talking about. Did you go to that Baptist church? No, never heard it, don't know in a minute. Uh, do you believe in Jesus? Head down. He buckled. He buckled under the sermon girl. But something happened that was transformed because the same Peter that buckled is the same Peter that was able to stand up in the day of Pentecost with absolute Holy Spirit boldness and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. To such an effect, with those who heard it, it was as if they had been stabbed by a spear. Something awakened within them. This wasn't just like a, a dead dull sermon. The living God was confronting that crowd of people. And the outcome of that is, as we know, what do we need to do? What shall we do? Repent and be baptised and you'll receive the forgiveness of sins. So Jesus' purpose is for the church to make disciples, for people to come and be baptised and to be added and brought in to these covenant communities, these expressions of the fig tree, and we're called to blossom, we're called to be fruitful. Jesus says, I have ordained you, as the King James Version says, I have chosen you that you may bear fruit. And what is some of that fruit that we have to bear? Of course it's the fruit of the Holy Spirit. Of course it's becoming like Christ. But it's also the fruit of answered prayer. It's, it's also the fruit of the harvest of, the, of souls who need to be saved. Somebody prayed in the evening, in the prayer meeting at the start, before the meeting, about the precipice, about the world standing at the precipice and not realising that the world could slip into hell at any moment. And it was praying for the, for the society, for community, for people to be awakened. But very often the reason that there's apathy in communities, the reason there's apathy in the world, is because the truth is apathy comes into the church. And apathy comes into our life as Christians, if we're honest. And what happened, But here's what happens, it's because of the wilderness. It's because of the wilderness season that we're in, what ends up happening is we become weary. We're enduring, we're faithful, we're pushing on, we're doing the things that are the right things to do, but within it, a weariness comes in, and maybe even a quiet disillusionment, and we don't expect much. And I think the enemy and the devil also works in our seasons of dryness as well. The devil comes and sows seeds of unbelief that we don't really expect God to do much in a place of dryness. So Paul talks about these different circumstances and these different seasons. But in the seasons, there's just some wonderful things. He says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That means we can face a season of dryness 
with the joy of the Lord. We can walk through our season of dryness with the joy and with the love and with the peace which comes from the Holy Spirit. And even in the midst of the season of dryness, we can be content in the Lord, but it's that paradox of we're content in him, but at the same time, that contentment sparks a divine discontent. It's that kind of paradox that's there. Um, When Jesus comes, when I feel the touch of your hand upon my life, when we feel the touch of Jesus in our life, nothing compares. Absolutely nothing compares to Jesus in our life. We know that we've found the peril of great price. We know that we've tasted the new wine. And any other wine is, is a cheap substitute in comparison to Jesus Christ. I tried all sorts of drugs and alcohol and all sorts of highs. And there were times that I was high. But as somebody once said from Teen Challenge, there is no high like the most high. It's true. When the love of Jesus touches our lives, there's nothing like it. And everything else fails into insignificance. All our other idols that we thought were great all of a sudden don't have the same joy. And even the good things in this life, our family, our loved ones, if we like art, um, whatever our interests are, even the best things in this world fail into pale insignificance in the light of Jesus Christ. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of the earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. So we're awakened to this. There is nothing like this. I've seen the light. I've I've been born again. I love Jesus Christ. He's now the king of my heart. But the paradox is, although um, we're we're delighting in him, we're satisfied in him. We used to be an old phrase that the old timers used to use, we're saved and satisfied. But at the same time, we're then launched into a pursuit of him. We've come to know him, but we desire to know him more. We're satisfied and delighted in him, but we long for more of him. But what happens is, is in the wilderness, is that longing for more of Christ, that, that desire to know him more and more of his fullness, that can begin to wane. And what can end up happening is, we're kind of living on yesterday's manner. We're living on past touches of his glory. We're living on echoes of his words rather than the closeness of his words. Because what's happened is our wilderness season has worn us down. But that's the devil's purpose in the wilderness. The devil's purpose in the wilderness is to cause us to lose our thirst, to lose our expectancy, and actually to lose our faith and trust and belief, not in Jesus, just Jesus for our, our sins forgiven and our salvation, but faith in the day-to-day situations that we find ourselves within. But God's purpose in the wilderness is actually to create a thirst. God's purpose in the wilderness is to create a deeper hunger within us that we might seek him. You know, think about the psalmist. I seek you, Psalm 62, is it? My soul thirsts for you in a dry and weary land. Again, the psalmist Paul's in the prison. Habakkuk's talking about no fruit in the vine. The psalmist is talking about a desert, but he's saying that desert is causing him to long for the presence of God. And this evening, I just want to kind of encourage you to that verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. There's something powerful and there's something miraculous in what Paul is saying here. Remember, the guy who penned these words is, is a guy who knew what it was to see God heal the sick. 
He's a guy who knew what it was to see God do miracles. When he talks about the power of Christ, he experienced firsthand the power of Christ working in that, those early missions. And he's saying to the church, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That means you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So if we're in a situation just now which is causing us fear, it might be a real situation. It might be um, bad news. It might be medical. And it's fearful. But Paul is telling us, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You can do all things. You can face this fear through Christ who gives you strength. He also, and that's, that's the secret and the power of what Paul's talking about being content. If Paul's message and Paul's principle is just be content, well, the Buddhists are telling us that. Oprah Winfrey's got some great quotes on contentment. Loads of wise sages and religions just talk about contentment. But the reason and the secret to Paul's contentment is this, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's a contentment which is birthed out of that relationship with Jesus Christ. The third verse uh, that I want us to kind of think about, so I was thinking here about I can face all situations, uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Uh, but verse 19, And may my God supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. But there's, kind of, there's something similar here as well. The wider context is Paul's talking about them financially given. He, he uses a metaphor, how that's like a fragrant offering, that's pleasing to God. It's not just a financial transaction. This is an act of worship. God sees our financial giving as an act of worship. And it's important that we remember that when we give because it is so easy uh, just to kind of give, but it's an act of worship. It's a fragrant offering to the Lord. And in response to that, he says, my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory. He's talking about finances, but it's not limited to finances. My God will supply every need of yours. God is a God that delights in meeting the needs of his people. He's a God who has covenant, made covenant promises that he will meet our needs. I don't know about you, but, but I tend to find the older I get in particular, the more self-sufficient I become. The more I, I rely on my own resources, the more I rely on my own experience, the more I rely on my own wisdom, heaven help me. And I rely on these things and circumstances rather than drawing in the resources of heaven. You know, every single need, if, I'm in, if there's a decision which needs to be made, and it's a very difficult decision, we're talking about deacons meeting the other, tomorrow night, it's difficult decisions to make. We can rely on human wisdom. What is it? The proverb says, trust in the Lord with all your heart, lean not on your own understanding. We can lean on our own understanding. We can draw on our own natural wisdom. Or we can draw from the promise in James, where if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives freely. We have got a resource of wisdom in heaven that would literally transform the decisions that we make in our life. We, the Bible says we can have the mind of Christ. I don't think Jesus made any bad decisions, but we can draw from that wisdom, that wisdom of Jesus Christ. And I can kind of parallel verse with this, um, he will meet all of our needs according to his riches uh, and glory. I was thinking about this verse, and some of the stuff that was getting prayed in the prayer meeting tonight was, was, was tying in with this. Probably just quicken faith here. Verse 20. Now to him who is able 
to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work with us, within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. What kind of needs is Paul talking about when he says he can, God can supply all of our needs? Look at verse 20. Sorry, I need to read that. No, you can't look at it. Now to him, God, who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can even ask, think, or imagine according to the power at work. Interestingly, not in heaven, but within us. What's the power that's at work within us? The power that's at work within us is the very presence of the Holy Spirit within our life. To him who's able to do far more abundantly. In our seasons of dryness, and the church in the West is in a season of dryness. The church in Scotland is in a season of dryness. But what I believe we can see from the scriptures tonight is that God is able to do far more than what we're asking right now. Have we come to just settle for the season of decline that we're in? This is not to bring condemnation tonight. Have we come to just expect and settle for a dry Baptist tank? Have we come uh, to just expect when we come to church on a Sunday night that we're not going to be expecting any visitors through the door? Have we just come to expect that uh, you know, things will just keep plodding on the way that they'll go and not expecting God to do much. We know that God sustains us in sickness, but you know, it's not a sin to pray for God to heal. And we can ask God to come and restore health. He can do far more above anything that we can even ask, think, and imagine. Now, don't get me wrong here. I'm not trying to say genie in the lamp stuff here. Everything is according to the will of God. But Jesus says if we pray according to his will, and according to his covenant promises, believing that we've received the things that we ask, we will receive them. So I just wonder what would, what would happen if little local churches all over Scotland began to kind of delve into the promises of God again and say, hang on a minute here. My Bible tells me that God's able to do far more than I can even imagine or come up with. My Bible tells me there's a power that's at work within me. We need to start storming heaven and asking heaven to invade earth. We need to start approaching the throne of grace and claim hold of these covenant promises. And say, Lord, let the wind blow in Scotland again. The Baptist movement was born in revival. The Brethren movement was born in revival. The Pentecostal denominations were born in revival. But historically what happens is, God raises up a man filled with the Spirit, who sparks a movement, people are saved, discipled, the thing gets mobilised, God's glory is revealed. But what happens is, the movement becomes an institution, the institution becomes a monument, and the monument becomes a museum. Baptist movement was birthed in revival, following the Reformation. The reformers laid hold of God, had fresh illumination about Jesus, about the glory of God, and literally transformed church and world. The irony is, God had to then, almost, was it 100 years later, maybe 70 odd years later, raise up the Haldanes to go to Geneva to almost teach the people that were sitting under Calvin's teaching the exact same truths again. Because the very ones that had received 
that reformation and that revival had grown cold. So most of us are gathered in monuments and museums. Most of us are gathered in, in churches which are a monument to a former glory. The revival, the Baptist movement revival was powerful. Soul saved. People repenting of their sins. Being baptised in water. Gathering around the scriptures. The revelation of the, the lordship of Jesus Christ and his church. That moving away from a clergy and laity divide. Where basically the popes and the priests and the, the ministers have got all the authority in the ministry. And the Baptist rose up and says, no, God's given gifts of the Holy Spirit to all of his people. Collectively we seek the mind of Christ. But what happens is we settle. We settle in our monuments. But God, could the wind of the Holy Spirit blow again? Could the wind of the Holy Spirit, Alec, blow through Bowness? Could people come under a conviction of sin in the same way during the Lewis revival as we hear there was the two old ladies playing, there was praying, and it was Duncan Campbell. And people became so convicted in their spirit, something's wrong. They didn't know where to go. They turned up at the police station. Something's wrong, can you help us? In the wrong place, you need to go to the church. And as the community came under that conviction of the Holy Spirit, in droves they came to the churches. Can that happen today in Bowness? Is God the same? Is Jesus Christ the same yesterday, today and forever? People say, oh no, 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 we've moved on too much from those days. I tell you, the darkness and the depravity and how far away people are getting from God, we are ripe for that situation to happen again. I think someone walked with John Wesley through a village and said, this place is just uh, too dark and too done and too condemned for God to move here. And John Wesley said, this is exactly the kind of place that's needed for God to move. Let's pray for the wind of the Spirit to blow through Bowness. I don't know what happened to me. I do know theologically what happened to me. But I know it wasn't normal. I came under a sovereign conviction of the Holy Spirit. And God in his sovereignty brought me under a conviction of the Holy Spirit and brought me through the doors of the church. And a few weeks later, somehow I get saved and I'm back in the church. And I remember some just young people about the same age as me looking at the church and looking at me going, this just doesn't happen. People don't just come through the doors of the church, not Christian, not interested in God, then get saved and then find themselves really interested in God. They had never seen anything like it in their life. But somehow they were very good brethren folk. If they opened up the book of Acts, they would see it there. If they read church history, I'm talking about the young folk, they would have seen it there. And these things are just foretastes and touches. And tonight, I just want to encourage you, I believe there's more. I don't believe God's finished with Bowness Baptist Church yet. I don't believe that, spiritually speaking and kingdom of God speaking, that this is retirement season for Bowness Baptist Church. I believe there is still a great commission. Because hell's flames are still burning as hot as they've ever burned before. And there is still salvation to come to people's homes. And you say, no, I'm not really in a place to I can't be as active. Your prayers can reach the throne of grace. You are a covenant child of God with promises of God. And every one of those promises, Paul tells us, are yes and amen. And you can reach the throne of grace through your prayers. And heaven can start to flow and start to touch homes and bones. All around this community where there's people in godless homes right now with not one thought of God. Your prayers can begin to awaken a God consciousness in these homes. People will start to think, why am I thinking about gods? I'll tell you why. Because there's this wee church, Bones Baptist, that's praying, let your kingdom come and let your will be done in Bones. That we are not happy to go to the grave until we intercede for this place to be saved 
and transformed with the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because he is the same yesterday, today and forever. Church, this is not a message of condemnation tonight. Church, this is a call to rise and pray and seek the face of God. You say we need laborers. We need workers. What does Jesus say? Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send laborers. He can bring them in. He can raise up stones and turn them into children of Abraham. There's a call tonight in the same way that there was a call for the people of Israel during the time of Judges. Judges 6, I think, or 7. And the people of God were hiding in caves and dens and strongholds, intimidated by the enemy. And God calls Gideon. Arise, mighty man of valor. Tonight I believe there's a church. There's a call for the church. Arise, mighty church of valor. You see, who me? Heaven says you. Heaven calls us this evening to see his kingdom come and his will being done in this area. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your words. We thank you, Lord, for your promises. And Lord, we do ask and pray, Lord, let your kingdom come and let your will be done. We thank you for the Lamb of God who was slain for the sins of the world. And we thank you for our personal salvation. Thank you tonight that we can have the joy of the Lord. But Lord, don't let us be satisfied whilst there is a world outside this church that is outside of the redemptive benefits of Christ. May the Lamb of God receive the benefits of that which he died for. The men and the women and the children that are in this community. Lord, we ask and pray that you would just bring us to that place of prayer. Lord, you're not calling us tonight to um, fervent, crazy, hyper-evangelistic activity. Lord, you're calling us to faith, to believe, and to call out and pray for your will to be done in this place and for lives to be changed and for people's lives to be snatched out of the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. We thank you, Lord Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's finish with singing when I survey the wondrous cross.